Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learnings so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. You know, we all have those days where we hop from meeting to meeting, only to look back at the end of the day and think, gosh, what did I really accomplish? If that sounds familiar, then you're going to get a lot out of this conversation with Bill George, the former chairman and CEO of Medtronic. He's also an executive fellow at Harvard Business School, and like me, he is passionate about developing great leaders. But he sees so many leaders spending more and more time in meetings and less and less time with customers and frontline employees. That kind of disconnect can be really dangerous and is something that Bill talks about often in this conversation. So I got a question for you. How can you eliminate the layers that tend to build up between you and the people who work on the front lines of your organization? In today's conversation, you're going to learn how to do it and why it matters so much. Plus, there's some great wisdom about leading with authenticity, finding your purpose, and so much more. After all, Bill is the author of True North. So let's get to it. Here's my conversation with my good friend and soon to be yours, Bill George. Bill, I got to tell you, I'm really honored to have you on the show and really appreciate it. Well, I'm honored to be on with you. And I think we're fellow pilgrims on the same path of trying to see better leaders uh, in all our organizations. Absolutely. And, you know, I want to talk about your time as CEO of Medtronic and in the past two decades you spent teaching leadership at Harvard Business School. But first, I want to take you back. What's the story from your childhood that shaped the kind of leader that you are today? Well, it depends how far back you want to go. My father pulled me aside when I was nine years old <laughs> and he said, uh, son, I feel like I failed to become a leader. I thought he was a very good consultant. He worked with Booz Allen and had his own firm. And he said, I failed to become a leader. I want you to become the leader I never became. And he put in my head that I could be head of a very large company. He mentioned specifically Coca-Cola, where he said he'd held stock since 1937. And uh, then he mentioned Procter & Gamble and a new little computer company called IBM out on the East Coast. <laughs> and of course, I didn't know what these companies were, but somehow I got in my head that I was going to be a, a leader. And I can tell you, I joined lots of organizations as, as a kid and never was chosen to lead anything. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't elected the student council. I wasn't head of any organizations. Uh, I was a good enough tennis player to play a couple of years of college tennis, but I wouldn't even co-captain my high school tennis team. So uh, I finally ran for president of senior class and lost by a margin of two to one. So I realized I had a lot of, a lot of learning to do about leadership. Yeah, I understand you learned quite a bit about your own leadership style running for student president in both high school and college. Tell us about it. Yeah, I lost six more elections in college. <laughs> and some seniors pulled me aside and said, Bill, no one's ever going to want to be work with you, much less be led by you, because you're moving so fast to get ahead, you don't take time for other people. Man, that was like a blow to the solar plexus. But it really caused me to go back and reflect deeply that and to learn that leadership's all about relationships, about relationship with people, about whether they trust you, whether they're inspired by you, whether they want to work with you, uh, and certainly whether they want to follow you. Well, you always had a lot of drive and ambition, and you still do because you have a big mission and purpose for your life in terms of trying to make the world a better place by developing better leaders. And, you know, I always look for people who had a lot of drive and ambition for the leaders that we hired. But I'm curious, you know, that can get a little bit out of control at times. You know, what advice can you give to leaders on on how to navigate their their drive and their ambition, especially early on in their career? Well, I think, you know, I was the kid that wanted to get ahead too fast. And I would say to today's leaders, take your time, do a lot of diverse things and really learn a lot about business. I did have the privilege of working at the working level. And I think a lot of people skip over that. They got to go to graduate school and come out and think they can work as a strategic planner. And they really haven't worked on the front lines. And I did a lot of that from the time I was 16 uh, up until I was you know, 26. And after that, I always wanted to be on the front lines. So uh, I think that's a key and, uh, and realize you're just like everyone else. You just come to work, you try to do a good job. 
And uh, we all have one shot at it here in life and, and try to see how you can make difference in the lives of other people. And if you can do that, I think at the end of the day, you feel like you've accomplished something. You know, you made your way to Georgia Tech and you became an engineer and then on to Harvard Business School. And, and from there, as I understand it, you, you, you go to work for the Department of Defense. Now, how do you think through that decision in light of your ultimate goal to, to run a large company? And, you know, your dad said, hey, go run Coca-Cola, Procter & Gamble, IBM. Oh, that's some pretty big, big, uh, big thinking. By the way, I did work summer jobs for all three of those companies. But uh, I went to work in the Defense Department because two things. Uh, I was during Vietnam. We thought we could help our country. That was one thing. And the second thing was that uh, there were a lot of outstanding people in the government, and we thought we could take a lot of the ideas we learned in business school and apply them to the government about how to manage better. And so I was very involved in big weapon systems those days, like the F-111 fighter planes and the C-5A and some real disasters. And it gave me the privilege to work with some very extraordinary people in the Defense Department from the Secretary of Defense on down. So uh, that was a great three years. But I always knew I wasn't going to stay there. I was had the opportunity the last year to work for the Secretary of the Navy. And it was just a wonderful experience. But I knew that was kind of learning about government. And uh, I figured... In my career, you'd always have to go back and work with the government eventually. I didn't know how soon because the first job <laughs> I had, uh, I went to work for Linton Industries and I had the job of doing the plan to, for them to get start the consumer microwave oven business, which uh, I put the plan together and then it didn't go well. And I got drafted to go to Minneapolis uh, about nine months after I joined the company. And uh, the night I was going there, I was packing my bags from Cleveland, where my, my home was, and Surgeon General came on and announced that microwave ovens are hazardous to your health. So we were back dealing with the FDA. Little did I know I'd wind up with Medtronic working with the FDA, but we were working with the FDA uh, very intensely in those days, and it was very challenging. And, but it was a great experience. Taking you back to your Department of Defense days, what was the biggest challenge you faced in your job and, and how did you handle it? Well, it, it, which, which job? <laughs> I had many <laughs> challenges all along. So uh, the job with Lytton was, uh, you know, as a young kid, uh, I was 27 years old. I'm hiring people at twice my age, twice my salary. And I really had to learn how to run a business. And the one thing I learned that was most important, David, is I never had a job, including all the job I had at Medtronic, where I knew as much about the business or the work as my subordinates did. Every one of them knew more than I did. And my job was to figure out how to bring them together and focus on the issues that are really important, whether it was growing the business, whether it was problems we had, whether it was a design problem or a manufacturing problem, and how to, how to get everyone to come together and focus on that and share the leadership with me because I was young and eager, but still they had a lot of wisdom I had to uh, bring people in on and extract from them. You know, one of the things that I learned, you know, just about your time at the Department of Defense, and I want to just go back to that for one more minute, is that, you know, you helped uncover a systematic falsification of body count numbers in Vietnam, as I yeah. understand it, okay? You know, how did you do that? And then as a, as a leader, what was your approach to do something right about it? Well, I couldn't fix that whole problem, but, you know, we were analyzing things and we saw that uh, I was there during the Tet Offensive. Before the Tet Offensive, the numbers, we were always skeptical about the numbers, but the number of Viet Cong dropped from 110,000 to something like 20,000 before the Tet Offensive, how they could pull that off with so few people. And it was all a statistical error. And, uh, and then they say that 35,000 people, well, they were killed in the Tet Offensive on the Viet Cong side, and the numbers went to minus zero and they stopped publishing the report. But uh, I think the point was, I had getting words from uh, friends of mine who were foot soldiers in Vietnam, particularly second lieutenants in the army, and they were telling me they couldn't come back to base without counting the same body three times. But what it really taught me is that if you put enough, Robert McNamara was Secretary of Defense then, and he put enormous pressure on people to deliver the numbers. And the numbers got falsified by feeding them up through a system. No one intentionally falsified the numbers. It just got systemically falsified. And everyone was relying on these numbers. They were fighting a war of attrition. But it showed me how far in a huge organization, if you don't know what's going on at the front line, you don't know what's going on. And we can jump all the way ahead to the last three years 
with COVID, if you didn't realize the value of frontline people, <laughs> you, you wouldn't have been eating unless they'd been working. It's nice to say we're home on remote, but they were the ones delivering the, the goods, so to speak. So we realized, I did, and, and I have ever since, the people that really make the difference are the frontline workers, the people that are working on production lines, working in the engineering labs, working on the frontline, working with customers. And uh, so I think that's a lesson that I think a lot of people have overlooked. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And, you know, you were 27 years old when you ran Lytton, which is just an amazing accomplishment. You think about that. And, you know, you had to, you know, obviously, you know, be the leader, act like the leader, give everybody the confidence that and you had meteoric growth. When you were, you know, in that role, how did you make sure that you developed your own skills so that you could keep up with it? Well, I developed my skills by listening to other people and understanding what they were doing. And I remember going into, we had a problem with meeting the radiation standards of the FDA. And I remember going into uh, work, you know, into the third shift we had working on, see if we could start production. It actually wasn't a third shift. It was getting ready for production the next morning, going in about three o'clock in the morning. And it was getting out with the people. That's how I learned. And by the way, I carried that through throughout my career, Medtronic. I learned much more about quality by going to sitting down with the group of production workers, going to the production line and asking people what their problems were than I ever could reading quality reports. So I learned the importance of being on the front line. I mean, and you can translate all the way to a challenge like Starbucks has today, the barista customer relationship, or how you feel about when you're checking into a hotel or how the flight attendant treats you on an airplane. These things are directly translate to me. You got to get out and know what's going on. And it's really hard to do. And my skill when I worked in the Defense Department was I could go to the very front line and then bring things all the way back to the Secretary of Defense and his direct reports. So I think that is something that I felt was absolutely critical. How were you able to manage up and down like that? You know, it's like, you you know, that's a real skill in and of itself. You could go to the front line. You say you could bring it up to top management. How did you learn that skill? And, and what advice could you give people on, on how to move it up the ladder? Well, I'd say just go to people and sit down and say, David, help me understand. How do you do this? Tell me, understand how does, how does this product get designed? How does it work? You know, I, I couldn't. Back to my Medtronic days, I couldn't design a defibrillator if my life depended on it, but I had to understand how it worked. So I was always asking people, how do things work? And learning that, I learned that in summer jobs when I was a kid. And if I could just keep asking that, it kind of, people want to help you. And, you know, they want to, they want to share with you what they know. And, uh, you know, people you go into the labs, they want to show you their latest, greatest idea. If you'll go out and work with a doctor at Medtronic, never tell a doctor how to do his or her job, but you can sure ask him, now tell me, help me understand how you're doing this. And boy, they were willing to help. And so I just found that's always true. But so if you can get that first line knowledge, then if you can integrate that all, then you can take it to high level people like I did in the defense department or like I did with Litton Industries corporate people or, you know, all the way to a board of directors in Medtronic and uh, try to span the length and breadth of the organization. Because I think the problem you've got in organizations, David, today, we're going off a little further, but is that the executive team is not talking to the front line. Uh, I wrote two cases on the Boeing 737 MAX. You probably recall that disaster. 346, yeah, 346 people lost their lives because top management wasn't listening to the engineers. The engineers knew what was going on. They knew it was a problem, but no one wanted to listen to them, you know? And there were too many layers in between. So uh, I think this is a huge problem in large organizations. You know, you work hard on, on developing yourself so that you, you can lead. That's been one of your, your, your great traits. And I understand that one of the things you've done to develop as a leader is that you have a meeting every Wednesday morning, and you've had this meeting with a group of guys ever since 1975, and it started in the middle of the time you were at Lytton. How'd this come to be? Well, we'd gone to a retreat, some of us, and we decided, let's keep meeting. We'd gone to a three-day retreat, and I really wanted to keep meeting, and so we have met. We're still meeting. We'll meet uh, yeah. every Wednesday morning, 7.15 to 8.30, same group. Well, a couple people have passed away, but six of us meeting. And the, the thing that's held the group together is there is a very substantive program every week. So we pass it around, you get two weeks and you have to come up with the program. Uh, we're all guys. And so my program a couple of weeks ago was 
what does it mean by authentic masculinity? What does it take to be a real male in today's society? Because, you know, the boys and a lot of them are dropping out. A lot of men are dropping out of work. And so there's, it used to be women and girls. Now we're really concerned about the males. So, but anyway, that's just a, a sample of a subject. You know, maybe what's the legacy you want to leave? What's the situation where you violate your own values? And so these, these groups have been incredible. And so I've taken the same idea in my courses at Harvard. Every one of them, we take 50% of the time and meet, or maybe 25% of the courses to meet with small groups. So people can talk in a very intimate way. And I find in large groups, there are a lot of things people won't say. You get to a six-person group with confidentiality. Then you really have an intimate discussion. And that group helped me so much. There was a time when I was unhappy in my work at, at Honeywell. And, but I still had in the back of my mind, I'm going to run some big company like Honeywell. And I was one of the two people on track to be CEO, maybe the leading candidate, if that's a little bit immodest. And, uh, you know, I, I was very unhappy. And I woke up one day and realized how unhappy I was. I told the guys in my group and they said, well, why did you, you turn down Medtronic for a job three times? Why did you turn him down? And I said, you know, I always, this is see the eagle coming out here. I always thought I was going to run a large company, Medtronic's kind of a mid-sized company. And I thought about it a lot. And, uh, you know, I finally screwed up my courage, called the CEO back. I turned the job down six months before. And I said, is that job still open? Be number two and be your successor. And he said, well, we're about ready to fill it. But yeah, it's open. So I got in line and walked in the company and it was the best decision I ever made. But uh, I think the guys in my group really helped me sharpen that or have the courage to go do it and to kind of give up what this idea, I'm gonna run a big company. Of course, Medtronic has now grown up to be quite a big company. In large part because of your great leadership and the people that you built within it. Uh, you know, And you did go to Honeywell instead of going into to Medtronic when they offered you the chief operating officer job. Uh, and you worked for this man named Ed Spencer. What was it about his leadership that made you wanna go there? Well, Ed Spencer was a great global leader. I'd worked him in our community. I think that's why he offered me the job in the first place. And I've always been looking for role models. My father set himself up as an anti-role model. So he was like a role model for me of the kind of leader I wanted to become. And I thought I could learn from him. He offered me a job reporting directly to him, which I did for a couple of years. And then I, he also gave me the opportunity. I never lived overseas. I traveled overseas all the time. But I never lived overseas. He offered me an opportunity uh, if I did well to be president of Honeywell, Europe, Middle East, and Africa. That's one of the greatest jobs in my lifetime, one of the greatest growth experiences I had, being in Brussels and having, you know, 50 countries or whatever, but really having a chance to really work in a true global environment. I barely spoke the language and, and had to work with uh, a really diverse people. And it was a truly great experience. And Ed gave me that opportunity. Unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago, but I learned a great deal from him about how do you run a big company. As EVP of Honeywell, you were on track to... To, to basically run that that company, but you say you lost your purpose of your leadership. You know, what was going on? How did you really uncover that? You talked a little bit about your group. Well, you know, I, I had had this great job in Europe for three years. It was fantastic. I thought it was going to be there five, but we went to a major corporate reorganization. I got a two-step promotion uh, to become executive vice president, one of four, and it was like the worst promotion in my life because I got separated from the people. Uh, when I was in Europe and when I was at Linton Microwave and later at Medtronic, I'd always been very close to the people on the front line. But here was such a huge bureaucracy. I had nine divisions, three groups. So all these layers in between me and the people actually doing the work. And I was given a series of turnarounds because I was quite willing to jump in and uh, turn businesses around. And we had a lot of businesses that were in trouble. And so as I spent about three years getting a whole series of, of businesses turned around and then they gave me another group of businesses, got that done in about 18 months. And then they threw me into the aerospace and defense business, which is important business, but it's not the business I was inspired by. And, uh, you know, I just realized that I was very unhappy. I, I like to think of myself as a business person that can grow businesses. We'd grown a greater than 50% a year at Linden Microwave. Later on in Medtronic in my career, I was there uh, 13 years total, and we grew at a compound rate of 18% per year. So I knew how to grow a business if I wasn't using my best skills. And, uh, and I wasn't in, in touch with the people as much as I wanted to be. So I finally told my wife that 
But I had this hang up all the way back to the first story you asked me about, about my father, that I was had to run a big company. And so I had to give that up. And so I think, you know, am I living somebody else's dream for me or am I living my dream? <laughs> and, uh, and when I walked into Medtronic, I realized I was living my dream to be with a group of people committed to a purpose. At Honeywell, purpose, kind of like General Electric, purpose of making money. And yeah, I know how to generate profits and all those kind of good things, cash flow, but that's not how I want to live my life. And Medtronic had a great purpose of restoring people to full life and health. And to tell you how we measured ourselves was the question we measured, the metric we measure ourselves, how many seconds does it take until another person is restored by a Medtronic product to full life and health? And when I went there, it was 100 seconds. When I left, it was down to seven seconds. And uh, if you do the math, we've grown 14 times. And today it's two per second. So to me, that became a metric that every employee could share in. What's great about that is that you, you've got such a noble cause that inspires people to get up every day and go to work. You rattle off what your mission is, just like TikTok. You know, how much time did you spend working on crafting that magic set of words about what your company is all about? Well, I didn't craft it. Earl Bach and our founder did. What I did was meet with people all the time, all around the world. Every time I went to India or China or Germany or the Netherlands, we'd meet with a group of employees and uh, talk to them about the mission and the values. See, that's what they resonate. If I went there and say, guys, our goal is to make so many millions this year, to make 236 this year, they, they can't relate to that. They don't understand that. They think that's my job, which it was. <laughs> they could relate to, they had to, to put a product together. They had to design and develop products that would save people's lives. Everyone could relate to that. Everyone, everywhere in the world. That became the glue, the bond that brought our company together. And we had to do it with taking care of our customers. And just to make it be real, I'll tell you that, see, I knew nothing about medicine when I went there. I knew a lot about technology. I knew because I'm an engineer and I'd been in high tech business. I knew zero about medicine. So the way I learned the business, I went out and put on the greens, gowned up, met a doctor, 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning. And then I watched him or her do surgery and uh, or, you know, work with their patients or follow up their patients, mostly with surgeries. And so I saw over between 700 and 1,000 procedures in the 12, 13 years I was there. So I had the chance to see a lot of frontline things. I saw some not very nice things and some pretty great things. But I that's how I learned the business. And I would bring those stories back and share them with people. And that inspired a lot of people. And I encourage all of our people to get out and spend time in the hospitals, seeing what's going on. Because I see a lot of companies getting people get uh, like I was a little bit at Honeywell, trapped in the ivory tower. Have you ever wondered what David is thinking as he interviews our guests each week? Or have you been interested in hearing David's take on some of the questions that he asks his guests? Well, I do, and I know a lot of you do too. My name is Kula Callahan, and together with David, I host the Three More Questions podcast that airs every Monday. These episodes are just about 15 minutes, and in them, I ask David three questions that dive deeper into the themes of his episode with his guests. David shares incredible insights and stories from his career leading Yum! brands, and all of his answers are super practical and inspiring. Like this great insight David shared in one of our most recent Three More Questions episodes. One of the huge traits that people need today more so than ever is the ability to collaborate. The ability to get all those opinions out on the table so that you can really make the very best decisions. And that, that collaboration skill is something that every leader really needs to, needs to develop. And, you know, that's why I think a very important question to ask as a leader is, what do you think? Get the Three More Questions podcast in your feed each Monday and dive even deeper into the episodes you know and love. Just subscribe to How Leaders Lead wherever you get your podcasts. Bill, you say you have to know how to lead yourself before you can lead others. Well, how do leaders discover what you describe as their true north? Well, you know, I think the first thing I do is you have a unique life story. What is your story? And I had to go back and process that back in my earlier days when I was on the wrong track. What is your story? 
and then deal with the most difficult times you've had. See, everyone wants to talk about what's your best self? When did things really go well? That's easy to talk about. I tell you, when things don't go your way, that's when you find out who you are. You find out what really matters. I had a, uh, if you don't mind me telling you the story, I had two tragedies that hit me uh, after I got out of, when I was in defense, right after I got out of Harvard Business School and I was, you know, been there four months when my father called to say my mother had died suddenly that day of a heart attack. And I was not very close to my father because he traveled all the time, but very close to my mother. She was the source of my values and everything I grew up to have tried to live to ever since. And uh, I never got a chance to say goodbye. And, uh, you know, I was very close to her. I'm an only child. And then I recovered from her death, fell in love, got engaged to be married to a woman from uh, Macon, Georgia, where she was living about in Washington, about three blocks away from where I was living and uh, was on track to get married. And uh, she had been having some headaches, but uh, we didn't know really what, what it was causing them. And she went back home to Macon to get ready for the wedding. And I talked to her on a Saturday night. And uh, the next morning, her parents called to say that she died in the middle of the night of a malignant brain tumor. Wow. And I can tell you, I was just devastated yeah. because I could explain my mother's death in the natural order of things, parents pass away. But I could not explain the death of a 25-year-old, uh, even though I'm a person of faith. And so that was really tough. And uh, fortunately, I had a lot of friends that came around me. I did have my faith. And that was the real test for me to realize, you know, yeah, I always had these long-term goals, but what really counts are the people, you and I talking, the people listening in, that one-to-one, -one, you know, today, right now. And that, that was a big learning for me uh, about the importance of uh, the only, we don't know how long we have to live, so we got to make every moment count. Uh, thanks for sharing that story. And, you know, when, when you think about it, what process should you use to find your, your true north and then find an organization that is in sync with your true north? You know, I think a lot of us think, oh, I want to be successful. I want to have a great family. I want to do this. I want to do that. But you really have to think through what gifts can you give to the world that are unique? What are the gifts you bring the world? You know, I'm not a technical genius. I didn't want to be, you know, an academic or, you know, what are the gifts? And you decide then, well, how is that purpose? How can you bring that? And you're right. If we want to be, I decided my gifts were going to be in leadership, but then I had to decide where do I want to lead? I can't just lead anywhere. I, <laughs> I tell you, if I went to politics, I would lose very badly <laughs> because I wouldn't be a good politician. I'm just too straightforward and too honest and say what I think. But I had to find, you know, the right match. Like you said, it took me a long time to find. I love my job at Lytton Microwave. But I can tell you the corporate headquarters, there were a lot of values and ethics questions for me. That's one of the reasons I had to leave. Honeywell was a very ethical company, but it was a big bureaucracy. And I kept trying to change the bureaucracy. And at Medtronic, it was small enough that I could help mold it with the kind of people we needed, a dedicated group of leaders that shared a common purpose and vision and set of values. And so that was like the right place for me. Uh, but I think you have to really go back and process what's really important to you in life and figure that out to find your true north. And it really is the core essence of who you are. And see, when you're successful, you start to think you're better than you are. And when it all gets stripped away, as it did with me with those two deaths, I realized what's really important to me in life. And I said it's really relationships with people and helping other people learn how to lead and reach their full potential. So if I had a purpose today, I would say I do have a purpose. And my purpose, you know, I'm not I'm not the guy designing the, the defibrillators or Medtronic or the stents. But I would like to think my purpose is to help people reach their full potential. And I've carried that over into the two decades I've been at Harvard Business School now. That's a great, great purpose. And uh, you've, you've made, you know, countless uh, positive impressions on so many people. And, you know, Back on the purpose, you know, you you did have to make that move to Medtronic, and it was a smaller company. It, it do you remember that interview process? And was there anything that the CEO said to you that said, "Hey, I'm going to be able to sync it up here"? Well, the CEO Ed Wallen was great to me. He, he we had a mandatory 65. The founder had had to retire a year earlier at 65, and so he knew he was going to go, and he had two years. 
So he had to find the right successor, and he was under a lot of pressure from the board, and I talked to five or six or seven board members about the job. The most important part was I met with the founder, Earl Bakken, who flew all the way to Phoenix, where I was meeting with one of my Honeywell divisions, and we met in a little Marriott Courtyard Hotel. And it's interesting, he never interviewed me for the job. All he told me, he wanted to talk about the mission, and he wanted to see if I got it, if I was going to be true to the mission and the values of the company he'd put in place. Because what he cared about is that mission being carried out. And I've seen mission-driven companies flourishing, and I've seen companies without a mission, like General Electric, that are not flourishing because there's nothing that brings people together. There's no glue. There's no there there. And I think that's why that's what I really learned from the interview process. And all the board members, as well as my predecessor, Wynn Wallen, were totally committed to this mission. You know, at the time, Medtronic was an industry leader in pacemakers and defibrillators, but you had this vision to become the world's leading medical technology company. Uh, and, you know, you, you achieved rapid growth as, as the CEO. What did it take to get everyone on board with this new mission, or was, was it a no-brainer to everybody? Well, the first person I had to get on board was, I was still COO, <laughs> I had to get our CEO, who was retiring, on board with it, because, yeah, why do you want to do that? And, uh, you know, we had a long way to go just to get the company to be, you know, the leader in our own field. But I just saw the potential of our technology to help so many people. And if we could take these implantable devices we were making and not just put them in the heart, but all over the human body, we could have a huge impact. And we were fortunate enough to realize a lot of that impact. I mean, with a disease like Parkinson's, which is you know, an incurable disease. We couldn't cure people, but we could give them a whole life and take away about 90% of the symptoms. Same with cerebral palsy, same with a lot of mental. That's the great future, the neurological disease in the future. But we were able to help people with heart failure and sudden cardiac arrest and a lot of things that, uh, you know, people would die from before. So that was a great satisfaction, not just to me, but to everyone who worked there, of seeing how we could fulfill that mission. So I saw my role as conveying that to everyone and trying to inspire them around that mission and then come together to solve problems of what's stopping us from doing it or how do we get there faster. You had this incredible run as the CEO, and, and yet you, you set this, uh, what I think was a self-imposed 10-year term limits for the CEOs at Medtronic. Uh, you know, what compelled you to do that? Well, I'd studied the previous generation of CEOs. I thought they were staying too long. There's a great danger for a CEO. You fall in love with the job. And I was just talking to the CEO who stepped aside six months ago, the world's largest privately held company, uh, who's a friend of mine. And he uh, he stepped aside after 10 years when he hit 64. Or 60, and uh, and uh, he was saying how his board was surprised. Mine was too. But I think... You can stay too long, and I think it's a high-pressure job, but you go out and give it everything you got, and then your successor knows when he or she can step up. And so that gave my successor, Art Collins, a chance to step up. But I can tell you it's like uh, rappelling down a cliff when you give up the job. I was 20, 58 years old when I turned it over to my successor, and I had no idea what I was going to do next. But, you know, you only go around once in life, and like you're doing other things, David, uh, I think you. I want to have the chance to experience all of life has. And if I identify too much with being CEO of Medtronic, then I can't develop myself as a full person because I just have that image. I'm CEO of Medtronic, and I start to become my title. And that's where I think people get in trouble. And uh, you never want to get caught up. Movie stars and celebrities get caught up in that, too. you got to put all that aside. That's why you're so passionate about what you call you know, living an integrated life. Well, that's another thing we faced. You know, that time I was going from Honeywell to Medtronic, I was looking around and thinking, you know, I might get offered, I got been offered some CEO jobs elsewhere, but so why would I do that to my family? My wife has a good job here in Minnesota and our sons are in, one was in junior high, one was in senior high school. They're happy. We have a lot of friends. And why would I disrupt their lives to be a corporate vagabond and kind of move from one city to the next uh, I was looking at the GE book, and they move people every year and a half to a different city. And, you know, what's that do to the family? So when I was 22 years old, I was dedicated, how can I have a great family life and a great career and not constrain either? 
And uh, yeah, there, there are trade-offs. I, I was, couldn't kid you, you know, and you travel as much as I did, but still, uh, I coach soccer. I coach youth soccer for 12 years. Uh, so I'm with my kids coaching soccer. They always, I was always with the team they were on, but uh, we wound up doing pretty well. It took a lot of time, but hey, it was worth it, you know, and I'm glad I did. You say growing companies have an opportunity uh, and an obligation to grow leaders. You know, what are some of the lessons that you've learned along the way that's allowed you to, to develop leaders in an effective fashion? Well, you got to be who you are, you know, and so many people. I remember back in the days of GE when Jack Welch was a GE. Everyone wanted to emulate Jack. And I talked to some people there. They said it was tough enough dealing with Jack. But trying to deal with these phonies or trying to be like him <laughs> was really bad. So you got to be who you are because I think that's where people get in trouble. They try to be something they're not. Or they get caught up in the image of I am my title or I am my stock price or, you know, I'm this big person going to Davos and make a great impression on everyone at the World Economic Forum or, you know, I get called to the White House to meet with people. That's not who you are, you know, and you got to get that out of your head that that's, that's the world you live in. Cause you can get carried. I've seen a lot of people destroyed by that. It's very sad to me. And then they lose sight of what they believe their values and they start trying to be something they're not. And there's nothing uglier than that. Art Collins was, is your successor. And I got to know him uh, in this special group of CEOs. We met twice a year. He fantastic person. I mean, really grounded, wonderful person. How'd you determine he was the guy to take your place? Well, Art's a world-class executive, and he was really good. It's hard, the hardest part was recruiting him out of Abbott Labs, or he was on a fast track there and getting him to come up. And he actually, we had a lot of, we had, we ran, for a company that put value on integrity, we had a lot of ethical problems internationally, not in the U.S. And Art had to go solve, help me solve those problems, go all around the world. So he was head of international, and then he became chief operating officer and then became my successor. But you could see he was going to be CEO someday, and I just uh, thought he'd be a great CEO of Medtronic, and he did a great job. So I uh, give him a lot of credit. He kept, stayed on the so-called straight and narrow, kept the company going on track, and didn't get pulled off. Because where companies get in trouble, succession is a time, David, when you can do really well or you can have it go really poorly. Johnson Johnson has done a good job in their succession. The GE succession did not work well between Welch and ML. And, uh, you know, I've seen other cases where succession really failed and the company went down. It's probably the number one cause of companies, whether they thrive or whether they get in trouble and eventually disappear. And so I, I thought that was really critical to have my successor there and work together. So we got to know each other very well. We'll be back with the rest of my conversation with Bill George in just a moment. You know, when you're connected to your frontline teams, you respect and value the work they do. That's certainly true for AutoZone CEO, Bill Rhodes. In our episode on How Leaders Lead, Bill talks about the importance of valuing those you lead. And so I've learned forever that if you really want to understand what's missing in a business or what we need to improve, you go straight to the front lines and you deal with the people that are dealing with a customer every day. They know best. And then I just have tremendous respect for what they do. And frankly, they're just wonderful people. And I love to be around them. Don't miss my entire conversation with Bill Rhodes, episode 122, here on How Leaders Lead. You know, you've said a couple things about GE and, you know, 20 years ago, everybody was raving about how brilliant they are. Uh, and then, you know, today everybody says, look what's happened. If you had to diagnose the single greatest thing that drove GE down, what would you say it would be? They chose the wrong leader in Jeff Emil, and they gave him 16 years. Where was the board? How can the company go downhill for 16 years and you keep the CEO? You know, if you can't do it after five years, move on. Uh, find a, a new way. Another example of that, you know, GE is gone today. There is no general. Here was the world's most valuable, the most admired company and the most valuable company in the world in 2000. And, uh, you know, today there is no GE. And it's a tragedy. There's a couple divisions left, but, you know, the jet engine division is a great division. But 
And I think it was really someone that didn't find himself. And he was uh, lived in Welch's shadow. You can't do that. Now, I'll give you another example of a company that was going downhill that turned around brilliantly. That's Microsoft. Uh, Bill Gates anointed Steve Ballmer, his original partner, to be CEO. The company did nothing for 14 years. They missed every single innovation that came along. They were milking the office and Windows software suites. And then Satya Nadella takes over. And Satya had his own tragedy in his life with his son, who sadly died of cerebral palsy. But Satya came in and said, you know, we're going to go from know-it-alls to learn-it-alls. We're going to have empathy. If you don't have empathy, you can't work here. He changed the whole company. They were the most arrogant company in the world when I tried to work with them, uh, you know, back in my Medtronic days. Today, it's a totally different company, and he is totally transformed, and the company has just flourished. So that's a good example of where a leadership change encouraged the company to do, or enabled the company to do exceptionally well. Another one. Tim Cook at Apple. Everyone said, no one can succeed Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs was a brilliant interviewer. He was not a great leader. And uh, you see what Tim Cook has done. has just been incredibly good. But here's a person who knows himself. You know, Tim is gay. He's openly gay. But he talks about it. He says, I'm proud to be that. And I've learned more being a gay man. Well, good for him. You know, that's a, not my experience. But hey, you know, he can be who he is. And I think that's what we all have to do, David, is be who we are. And, you know, I'm not some rock star. And so uh, you just got to, you know, just got to do what you could do well. Bill, you obviously tell it like it is, at least from your perspective. You don't mince words. I mean, you offer up your point of view. Was this something that always came natural to you? Or is this something you developed over time? And what advice could you give to people who are a little bit afraid of confronting reality and or getting their point of view out there? Well, you know, I tend to be too plain spoken. A good friend of mine is Paul Pullman, who's head of Unilever. <laughs> He's Dutch. My ethnic heritage is Dutch, and I tend to be very direct. And sometimes that offends people. Even in the classroom, I'll offend people by challenging them. So, uh, uh, yeah, that's kind of the way I am. But I tell you, for a long time, I had trouble being vulnerable and just admitting mistakes. I thought I had to be on top of everything. And it took me a while. And when I could do that, when I could be vulnerable and admit mistakes, say I'm sorry. I've always been able to say I'm sorry, but to really admit mistakes more freely, uh, wow, then that's where I could really grow and become into being myself. It took me a while. And so I tell people today, you got to be willing to be vulnerable. You got to admit your mistakes. If you're on top, you don't admit your mistakes, no one else can. That was what I saw in the Defense Department. No one's willing to admit their mistakes. We made horrible mistakes. Why not admit it? And so I think a lot of people can't do that and because they feel vulnerable. And I think when you can you can be vulnerable and say, I made a mistake, or I'm David, I'm sorry I offended you. I didn't mean to say that. Uh, that's okay. People will forgive you. What part did recognition play in your, your uh, leadership style? Look, I always say, if we have a problem, if say you're on my team and you cause a problem, I'm going to step in front and say, I'll take responsibility for that. But if we do really well, the team's going to get the credit, people on the team. And I've always operated with that philosophy. Hey, it was the engineers made Metron go. It was all those people who are working with doctors and ensured every pacemaker, every defibrillator, every stent was a successful procedure. People on the production line that produced a perfect quality every time. They're the ones that made it go, not me. I was just there to support them. And I think a lot of people don't understand their roles. They think I'm in charge. I'll tell them what to do. We really have to realize that they're the ones that make the difference. Hey, go on an airline. What do you remember about the airline? When's the last time you saw a CEO on a commercial airline? Hmm? You don't see them, right? You know, who are the people making the difference? It's the pilot. It's the flight attendant. It's the people you're interacting with, the person at the gate, how you're treated. That's what makes a difference. So whether you like flying in that particular airline. So I think that's so important that we recognize uh, people and give them the credit and never take credit for it. But also... Don't be a blamer. And I've seen leaders that are real blamers or leaders, managers, executives, toxic executives. Every time there's a problem, they blame someone else. Carly Fiorina, when she was at Hewlett Packard, was blaming everyone else. And you got to look yourself in the mirror and say, am I the problem? That's absolutely true. You know, and, and Bill, this has been a lot of fun and I want to have some more with the. I always do a lightning round of questions. So are you ready for this? Yeah. What's one word others would use to best describe you? I hope as a person of integrity. That may be the one word you'd say to, to describe yourself as truthful. 
I guess I'd like to describe myself as a person who was true to his values. One word, integrity. Who would play you in the movie? Who would play me in a movie? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That's a really good question. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, I'd like to play me, but he's deceased now. It's Henry Fonda because he was a great man I looked up to. <laughs> there you go. If you could be one person for a day beside yourself, who would it be and why? Ah, living or dead? Living? Doesn't matter. Uh, deceased, it would be Abraham Lincoln or Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> yeah, living, it would probably be the Dalai Lama, where I just <laughs> met with him last October. <laughs> What's your biggest pet peeve? Biggest pet peeve? People that don't give a damn. You've been married to your wife, Penny, for 54 years. What's your best piece of marriage advice? Ah, uh, uh, be true to your marriage vows, be true to your wife, and... Uh, Communicate all the time. You never stop because we go in different directions. Keep communicating. Keep talking. And tell her you love her. <laughs> Who's the leader you admire most today? Today? I mentioned Satya Nadella. Uh, uh, there, I marry Mary Barra at General Motors. I really admire. Uh, they're just fantastic leaders. I, I think there are some great leaders out there today. And... Uh, in business, and I really admire them. David Gergen's a good friend of mine. I look up to him. He's a, a great leader. Nori Ardine, these are all very wise people. If I turned on the radio in your car, what would I hear? Uh, <laughs> you'd probably hear a soccer channel or CNN <laughs> or maybe some music because I change the dial all the time. I don't like ads. I'm very impatient, so I'm moving the dial around because I don't want to listen to any ads. What's something about you few people would know? That I mentioned earlier to you intentionally that I coached soccer for 12 years. Not many people would know that, except for some of my former soccer players. While I was CEO of Medtronic and Executive Vice President of Honeywell. And that's the end of the lightning round. Good job, by the way. You've been at uh, Harvard Business School for the past 20 years. What have you learned about leadership from teaching? Well, I think, uh, you know, if you're teaching, you are leading a class. And I think it's to care about every person, help them realize their full potential. Sometimes you do that by challenging them. Sometimes you do it by encouraging them. And uh, I spent a lot of time, I spent two and a half, three hours a day when I was teaching MBAs, uh, trying to give counsel uh, to them. You're on this mission to help people fulfill their potential. What's the biggest challenge you see when you look at what's going on in the companies that uh, you study? Being captive of the shareholder of the last five minutes. In other words, the short-term shareholder and falling prey to that and capitulating to it, I think is the biggest problem. You lose sight of your mission and your strategy and the bigger picture. How do you stay focused on that big picture, Bill? When, you know, it's, you know, it's raining outside, your sales are down that quarter. I mean, you know, you, you had a tremendous run and deservedly so, but, you know, when you had those seasons in your life when it was rough, how, how did you how did you stay focused on the big picture? Well, you know, you, you have bad times and just admit it and say, guys, we're having a bad quarter or having a bad time. Let's uh, we're all got to pull together and we're going to we're going to pull it out. It can be better in the months ahead, the year ahead. And we got to pull everyone together to do that. But admit you got a problem. You can't solve any problem until you admit it. And then you got to look yourself in the mirror and realize that maybe I'm the source of the problem. <laughs> maybe I overpromised and underdelivered. So uh, you got to make sure that you're honest with yourself first. All right, last question. What's one piece of advice you've given to someone who wants to be a better leader? Well, that's easy. Be yourself because everyone else is taken. There you go. So don't try, <laughs> don't start to emulate your predecessor. Don't try to act like you're a CEO. Just be yourself, be who you are. And if you can do that, you'll be very successful. Absolutely. Bill, thank you so much. I, I This has been really fun and uh, a really, you know, vibrant interview. I appreciate it very much. Well, David, you're a fabulous interviewer and it's been my privilege to be with you. And let's stay on this course of helping people become better leaders. I love leaders like Bill who just don't mince words. He says exactly what he means, and boy, he means what he says. And it's funny, as Bill was talking, I found myself just nodding my head over and over again in agreement. 
Every time he talked about the importance of your people on the front lines, I thought about all the time I spent in KFC, Pizza Hut, and Taco Bell restaurants all around the world. And I got to tell you, for me, that was where the magic happened. Talking to customers, listening to team members, it was such a powerful way to understand the true needs and pain points of our restaurants. And by staying connected to the front line, I was able to make better decisions and hear breakthrough ideas. When you let layers pile up between you and the people who really do the day-to-day work, it's easy to lose perspective on the heart of your business. What makes your business really tick? This week, I want you to ask yourself, how many layers are standing between you and your front line? How often do you get truly connected with the people who make your product and serve your customers, who really keep things moving day-to-day? Come up with three ways you could cut through some of those layers. When you prioritize your connection to the front line of your business, it's going to help you make better decisions, discover new ideas, and build the kind of culture where big things happen. So do you want to know how leaders lead? What we learned today is that great leaders stay connected to the front lines. Coming up next on How Leaders Lead is Michael Bungay-Stanyard, best-selling author of The Coaching Habit and founder of Box of Crayons a leadership development company that helps leaders tap into the power of curiosity. It really pays dividends to stay curious longer to figure out what the real challenge is. And in fact, if you're looking to be an aspiring leader, if you can become known as the person who figures out what the real problem is, rather than the person who has fast advice, that is a far rarer and a far more valuable resource within an organization. So be sure to come back again next week to hear our entire conversation. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple on each episode that you can apply to your business so that you will become the best leader you can be.